Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Kenneth Kirwa, who is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We will be discussing how contemporary students can gain expertise in areas of specialization as well as the importance of note-taking. Ken received his Ph.D. in educational psychology from Florida State University and his bachelor's degree in secondary English and elementary education at the State University of New York at Oneonta, where in 1999 he was named a top 100 graduate in the university. While professor, Ken has received the Distinguished Teaching Award at the University of Nebraska, as well as an Outstanding Professor Award in the, in the College of Education and Human Sciences. Ken, welcome to Teaching Matters. Well, thank you very much for having me, Scott. Glad to be here. So, Ken, I've known you for, um, uh, well, almost 20 years, if not a little bit longer now. And one of the things that I remember uh, when I first met you is you talking about an interest that you had in helping people develop expertise uh, and what goes into that process. Um, so I, I thought I wanted to start by having you talk about what you mean by expertise and from you know both a scholarly standpoint and, and also from a teaching standpoint, maybe even from a parental standpoint, how do you know when, when a young student is going down that path and how do you know when they've gotten there? All right, well, Expertise is is pretty simply defined. It's somebody who's really, really good at something. And I think, you know, we're all pretty good at recognizing people with expertise or what we could even call talent. You know, when we see Roger Federer on a tennis court or we hear a Beethoven symphony, we say, oh my gosh, these people are, are clearly experts. Um, another word that I mentioned there was talent. And I think that word sometimes gets misused we often think of talent as something that's inborn. Somebody was born with mathematical talent or with chess playing talent. And that's just not really true. Talent, like expertise, is something that is developed. It's something that has to be earned through a lot of time and a lot of hard work over that time. I suppose we could throw in a third term and that's creativity. And when we're talking about the Mozarts and the Picassos, and the Stravinsky's, you know, now we're talking about people who are creative. And creativity extends beyond talent, beyond expertise. These are people who challenge the status quo, who take a domain somewhat further than it's been before. And um, so that would sort of be the hallmark of creativity. Uh, we often misuse that word creativity. You know, we might think of somebody in preschool who you know draws a wonderful picture or we might think of a fourth grader who comes up with a nice solution to a problem but that's not really what we mean by creative we're really talking about somebody who extends a domain in a significant and important way now do you think that the ability to develop talent expertise and creativity all three of those maybe at the same time is it simply a matter of putting time into something or, or are there things beyond that that's that's important well, time is, is huge. There's no way that you really become an expert in anything and certainly not creative uh, without working diligently in an area probably for 10 or more years. That's sort of the, the rule of thumb, that 10-year rule. But 
you know, a lot of people can work at something and really not get very good at it at all. You know, I might go out to the uh, practice range, you know, for a few hours a day and hit golf shots. But if I'm just hitting the same crummy golf shots time after time and I'm not learning from my mistakes and I'm not improving, I'm not really gaining much expertise at all. So in addition to being motivated enough to put in the time, one needs to do things properly. And that's where having expert coaches or mentors or teachers comes in. You've really got to have you know, high quality training uh, to get yourself to that kind of level as well. Mm -hmm. And and just uh, before we move on to a slightly uh, different but related question, when you're talking about developing uh, this type of talent and expertise, it's not just in skill-related arenas. You've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about playing chess and, and some other areas, but it's really not just, uh, you know, production-oriented skill development. It, it also you know, goes into people uh, being able to develop expertise about, uh, for lack of a better term, theories or more conceptual things. Is that is that correct? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, um, yes, I've I've studied a good number of skills, like you said, uh, chess playing, uh, musical talent, baton twirling, swimming, diving, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, somebody can become a, a theoretical expert in educational psychology or math. So it's a matter of mastering a domain, whatever that domain might be. Going into this a little bit deeper, um, when when do you think that a person starts to develop or go down this this pathway of becoming more of an expert? Is that something that starts at an early age? And and I'm guessing you'll say yes, and you can elaborate on that. But then as a follow up, is it also something that a person later in their life can start to go down that path on? Well, becoming an expert, I mean, you can't talk about expertise without talking about learning. As one learns, one is on the road to expertise. How far they choose to go and how far they go, I really believe is, is ultimately in their hands. I often tell my students, you know, hold your hand out in front of you, palm up, and take a good look at it because that's your future. That's your, um, your ability to become somebody that you're not – now, you know, there, you, you, you can become a true expert. You can become creative. It, it, it really is in the palm of your hand. You, you hold all the controls. Um, so, so, example, yesterday I was doing some shopping around for televisions. And, of course, when you're, when you're shopping for anything, you have to become a bit of an expert. You have to know the jargon, the lingo. You have to know what's out there, what's good, what's bad, and so forth. So, in a sense, I, I spent a day or two becoming a bit of an expert. Um, now, to really become an expert in televisions or technology, that would take me obviously far, far more time. But my point is, you know, we're always sort of on the road to talent or expertise as we as we learn mm -hmm. in, a, in an area. And and and, and so, so from your answer, uh, it sounds like that process could begin for young children, but could also begin for an adult that decides they want to develop expertise in a new area that's that's not something they had done before. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think there are sort of more critical periods uh, for learning and development. Um, you know, it would be hard to become a champion um, tennis player or maybe even a chess player uh, beyond the age of 40. But yes, um, early experience is, is very crucial. And uh, kids, uh, 
you know, in the earliest years are absolute sponges. They're learning machines. So we have a wonderful opportunity then to teach them information, to teach them skills, to teach them attitudes and begin to shape uh, really how they learn as well. So one of the things I see in my research is that most of the people that we study who become highly talented did begin uh, work in that area as youngsters. Very often they might have been two, three, four, five years old as they first, you know, held and spun a baton or, you know, started moving chess pieces about or playing the piano. Um, so having that head start helps. It's, for one thing, it's just more hours. But for another thing, um, it's, it's a prime time for learning. So, of course, you mentioned parents. Parents are crucial in this, in this way because it's often in the home that a child is exposed to their eventual talent area and it's often in the home uh, early on that they have supportive parents who are you know maybe taking them to concerts and playing music and um, uh, you know rewarding them for for music playing and music appreciation so yeah very often it starts early and very often it starts right the, in the um home. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in, especially with with our current you know crop of students that that I, I tend to call the millennial and post millennial students, is that unlike when I was growing up and you were growing up, our, our students now have so much access to information. So if if I have like like with my daughter, for example, if she wants to develop uh, expertise in in an area like playing music or playing basketball, whatever you want to select as your example. She can go online and find so much information about that 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 just would not have been accessible in an easy way for previous generations. So on one hand, the kids now have a ton of ability to understand, uh, you know, how to do things. Um, but on on another sense, it's it's in some ways more difficult for them because they have so much opportunity. How do you think that the rise of digital culture is sort of you know, made things available? I mean, what are the benefits and drawbacks of, of everything that's available online now in terms of this expertise development? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you're absolutely right. There is a wealth of information. I talked earlier about how important it is to receive instruction and proper instruction. And I can uh, get online and a few hours, you know, like I said, become a bit of an expert on televisions. You mentioned basketball. There's all sorts of wonderful instructional videos about how to train, how to practice, how to hold the ball, how to make the jump shot, and, and so forth. So things that might not have been available to people, to kids in particular in the past, are highly available now. Let me give you uh, chess uh, as an example. My son is a, is a champion chess player who's now 28 years old. And when he was learning, if there was not somebody in your neighborhood or immediate area, where were you going to get chess lessons from? How were you going to learn about chess? One of the things we did was we found uh, a Russian grandmaster who lived in New York. So my son would do telephone lessons. But it was pretty awkward because the chess master would have to set up a board where he is. My son would have to set up a board where he is. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't see each other's boards. They had to talk algebraically about where to move the pieces. It was very difficult, very awkward. Now they would get on uh, the Internet. Uh, they would share a common uh, space. 
they, they would see the same board. Somebody could move the pieces with a click. With another click, they can reset them and, and move them again. Uh, he can get online and watch tournaments all around the world live. In an instant, he can watch games that were played in the last few days and click through them rapidly. So information that... Um, uh, you know, was was difficult for him to access previously is super, super easy to access now. The downside is, you know, we have to think about technology that we can use it for good or we can use it for evil. And it's kind of always been that way. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we would talk about kids who are being raised by television stereo systems and electronic toasters or something like that you know we you know there was always electronics um getting in the way potential distractions and now of course that's probably tenfold you know with cell phones and all the various uh, devices that that people have so i guess my point would be when used properly those things can make a huge difference have a great benefit but of course, people can waste a lot of time. They can waste a lot of time with email and Twitter and um, you know all these other programs, Facebook. And when they do that, they're taking time away from the pursuit of their talent area, perhaps, or maybe the relaxation they need, you know, in between practice sessions, etc. So, yeah, I think mostly very, very positive. But we've got to be careful not to waste our time. Um, and be slaves to technology too. I know. I know that the email part is something that definitely takes time from all of us nowadays. It seems like so. I can definitely relate to that. Mm -hmm. be before we move away from the technology issue, so one of the things that I found interesting over uh, you know the last couple of years when I've been paying attention to uh, sort of the the many statements that we see mainly in the popular media about where uh, you know CEOs of all of these different corporations are saying what we need is well-rounded individuals that have liberal arts backgrounds which you know as professors I think we would all say yeah I, I agree with that do you see any tension between that desire for a well-rounded liberal arts education and the development of expertise in other words are they mutually exclusive or are they self-reinforcing? Well, I mean, I, I see the benefit of a general and broad education so that people can draw from those various domains and look at how people solve problems in those areas and so forth. And I also think that there's some value in learning some general skills, you know, thinking skills, problem-solving skills that can be used you know, whether I'm using them again to choose a television or I'm using those to plan um, uh, chess instruction for a child, whatever it might be. But I think the thing that we learned maybe 20 years ago, and I think that is still true today, is that there's really no substitute for expertise. You know, ultimately in a job, somebody's going to need to have a certain level and type of expertise. And other types of expertise are not going to um, going to cut it. So, you know, in one hand, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves, but on the other hand, you know, we probably have the ability and the propensity to become highly talented, become experts in one area, but not many more because it really does take uh, so much time and and energy. So I think, you know, ultimately what uh, em employers would want would be uh, people who 
fit their needs and are expert in those needs. The problem is people may not have been trained that way and it might ultimately be up to those folks to, to get those workers trained. Right, yeah, sort of on-the-job development of expertise that, yeah, right. yeah. So maybe the bottom line is you want somebody who has good learning skills, who's capable of learning in any area. I remember uh, a guy who's a chess master saying, um, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a chess master. I, I learned this. I mastered this. I can take what I know about learning and I can apply it to physics now in college or I can apply it to the study of music. So, you know, I know this is something we'll probably talk more about in a bit, but I think maybe the bottom line is if we teach people general learning skills, then they become capable of learning in any area. Actually, that's a great segue because that was where I was going to go next. So I, I remember that you, you know, for as long as I've known you, you've been a proponent of, of teaching students how to learn. In fact, on your faculty web, web page, you use the metaphor of teaching a person to fish versus giving them a fish. If you could, if you could talk, uh, you know, to our audience about what do you mean by uh, learning strategy instruction with students, and and maybe give some examples of of how we can help students be more um, um, understanding of their own learning processes and get better at those. Okay, so first off, I think I, I work with students. Yes, I work to try to make students more capable, more proficient, more expert. But I also do the same with teachers. I work with teachers trying to get them to improve the level of their instruction. Um, now, when I say improve their instruction, I'm not necessarily talking about um, their knowledge of math or physics or history, their subject area. I'm talking about the pedagogy, the, the skills of teaching. So, for instance, uh, what I would tell teachers is, look, we know that when students have organized information, it's easier for them to learn that information. It's easier for them to encode that into their brains, into their memory systems, which depend on a high degree of organization. So I think if you want to be a good teacher, you can't just throw information out there randomly. And you can't just organize things in outlines and lists because we know that when things are organized that way, it's hard to see patterns and relationships. So teachers, here's a good thing to do. When you're presenting information to students, try to organize it spatially. You know, try to create things like hierarchies and sequences and charts and tables and illustrations so that students can see the organization and the patterns inherent in that material. So this is what I would tell teachers and help them to do this. Okay, so if they do this, I would say they are now more effective teachers because they're teaching students and presenting material in an organized way. But the key, Scott, is I don't think that's where the story ends. I think it's important for teachers to be highly effective. And in fact, I call this kind of teacher, Teacher A, so effective that students learn almost in spite of themselves. So I don't think it's enough just to provide students with good organizers and other things that help them learn. I think teachers have to go the next step. They have to become Teacher A+. And this is the teacher who teaches students how to learn. So as I provide an organizer, maybe comparing these four theories that we're studying in class, why don't I give a little commercial and say, hey, class, look what I'm giving you. I'm giving you this organizer. Really good stuff, huh? Really helps to see the patterns and the relationships 
among these four theories. You must like having this kind of thing to study from. Well, you know what? You can do this. You don't have to depend on a teacher like me to give this to you. You can create these things. Here, let me show you how to do it. Let's practice some more. So my point is, yes, we want teachers to be highly effective like teacher A, but we want them to go the next step like teacher A plus and teach students to do these things for themselves. You know, and I, I find, uh, I, I remember uh, 20 years ago hearing you talk about teacher A and A plus, and it's still such a wonderful way of conceptualizing, you know, what we should be doing as teachers. Um, like 20 years ago, you were like five and I was <laughs> yeah, that's like right. 25 or something. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the great thing about it is that um, I, I think that for many of us as teachers, we instinctually know we should be doing that, but we don't have a vocabulary sometimes for being able to do it. Uh, but but I think that once we understand that it's okay for us to tell students, this is something that you can use in another class very easily with another teacher, um, it, it's very liberating because it, it helps you sort of go behind the, go behind the uh, curtain, so to speak, on the teaching process for students. And I'm sure you found this. I know I found it in my classes when I actually take time to do this. Students Students love it and they eat it up because by and large, they've had very little opportunities to learn those sorts of strategies. Right. Yeah. Think about it this way. We're, we're giving them a toolbox that they can take with them and not only use in our class right now, but in our class later and in other classes now and in other classes later. I mean, if somebody went to a counselor with a, with a personal problem, the counselor hopefully wouldn't just say, uh, do this. The counselor would say, hmm, this is the kind of situation you keep getting into. When you get into these kinds of situations, why don't you try this? Because that way they're giving them a tool that's going to work again and again and again. And that's what we need to do is we need to provide students with this ability to become autonomous learners, independent, capable learners, so they can learn anytime, anywhere, even when they don't have teacher A and they have, you know, teacher D, for example, who just kind of throws the information out there. You know, when students have bad teachers, we don't want them throwing up their hands and saying, well, I can't learn, I have a bad teacher. We want them to have a set of strategies that they can use anytime, any place and succeed nonetheless. Yeah, and, and you know, relating it to uh, my field of communication, one of the things that that we're challenged by, but I think this is true in other and many other disciplines as well, if we tried to, if we did not do that, if we did not try to equip students with the ability to be cognitively aware of their own learning and, and to teach them ways to continue learning when they're confronted with new situations, we would be doing a disservice because the technology is going to change so rapidly now that if they don't have those cognitive abilities, they're going to graduate and then immediately be behind the the, the curve of technology and have no ability to catch up. So I, I think it's so important given the context of, of where we're at now as a culture with technology um, and helping students develop those learning skills that can, you know, be used for their entire life. There's no question. Yes. Uh, you know, if I, if I go back to, to chess, what should an expert coach do? Well, they should look at the board with the, with the student and say, hey, I would make this move and here's why I would make it and so forth. So there's that sort of uh, immediate content knowledge. But the other thing the coach has to do is open up his or her mind and let the student know how it is they're thinking. You know, why am I thinking about this position in, in this way? Uh, and that way the student can adopt the expert's thinking. The other thing the expert needs to do 
is show the student how he or she trains. How is it that I get better? And, and, and the student needs to see that and appreciate that and incorporate those kinds of skills as well. So there's a lot that uh, an expert coach, an expert teacher needs to pass along to students to eventually make those students uh, successful and self-sufficient. My guest today is Dr. Ken Kirwa from the University of Nebraska, and we have been talking about uh, development of expertise and also learning strategy instruction. I want to shift gears to really a point of, of uh, research and knowledge that Ken and I both have uh, a lot of interest in, and that's the topic of note-taking. Uh, Ken, you actually did your dissertation on the topic of note-taking. Is Am I remembering that correctly? You are. I did, I did that, and I've done several studies since. That's correct. Yeah. So, and, and actually, that was one of the things that drew us together at Nebraska was that we both uh, you, you had you had the expertise and I was wanting to develop the expertise uh, and and that was how we got together. Can you um, help? So I think many people have not thought very deeply about note taking. I mean, I think many people knows that note taking is is very important. Uh, I think many people try to be good at note takers uh, without much instruction on how to do so. Can you talk a little bit about? why it is that note-taking is so important in the process of learning, and I'm thinking about uh, the dual uh, function of note-taking that you've done research on. Sure. Do you mind if I start with a little story as to how I got interested in note-taking? No, please. We love narratives. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was in graduate school at Florida State University, and I was in a difficult statistics class. And it was like the first day of class, the professor said, students, you could put those pens away I don't allow note-taking in this classroom. And everybody looked up and was aghast. And he said, the reason is I don't think that when you are taking notes that you're really listening, you're really processing, you're really thinking about the information. And I truly want you to think about the information. However, I know that one of the values of note-taking is having a set of notes to review later on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide each of you with a set of complete notes at the end of each lecture so you have a set of notes to study. And with that, everybody kind of stood up and applauded. Um, but not me. Um, I was kind of a, a voracious note-taker. I mean, back in my college days, I was twice named note-taker of the year. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't like this. So I, I kind of retreated to the back of the room, and I got one of these small notepads, and I kind of tucked in behind a, an ex-offensive lineman who had let himself go, so he cast a long <laughs> shadow. And I kind of sat there behind him, and I kind of made a little alcove with my arms. And when the instructor wasn't looking, I would scribble some notes. And uh, for the most part, you know, this, this seemed to, to work pretty, pretty well, although I didn't really appreciate sitting in the back of the room. I was more of a front row person. And uh, I remember one day the shadow seemed to come from a different angle. And sure enough, I look up, and behind me there's the instructor. And he says, Mr. Kira, are you taking notes in my classroom and I, I thought for a moment and then I did the only thing I could do is I lied I said no I'm writing a, a note to a friend back home he said oh good 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 I thought you were taking notes so that kind of started it for me and uh, he, he became my my advisor at Florida State University and together uh, we began uh, a series of studies investigating note-taking including the question you know should students be taking their own notes or is it uh, adequate for them to get a, a set of notes uh, from the instructor so let me, let me give you some of the bottom line uh, findings about note-taking um, 
One is it's important to have a good complete set of notes. There's a high correlation between note taking and achievement. So the more notes students have, the higher their achievement. Uh, the second thing to know is that students are pretty poor note takers. Students on average record only about one third of important lecture ideas. So they're missing two thirds of the information in notes. Now that's pretty ludicrous because I mean if I were to give you my phone number and it's a 10 digit phone number and you write down three of those digits, you're in trouble. And it's the same sort of trouble I think students face when they take tests and they're studying for tests but they don't have adequate information to study. So I guess another point to mention there is that there's only a 5% probability of recalling information on a test that did not appear in your notes. So uh, with that backdrop, why might note taking be effective? Uh, one reason might be the process of recording notes. So even if I, so let's, let's imagine there's two groups, one group that takes notes during a lecture and one that simply listens. And then at the end, we test those two groups and we don't let anybody study anything. So what we're looking at there is the process, the activity of note taking. Is that process useful? And the research here is, is actually kind of mixed. Um, sometimes note taking is better than listening. Um, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it just doesn't matter. One is as good as the other. Rarely is listening better than note taking. So I guess the first thing my instructor might say, you know, or I might have said to my instructor is, hey, you know, I enjoy the process of note taking. I benefit from the process of note taking. But I guess the jury on that is, eh, so so. The other benefit or function of note taking is that notes can be stored externally on a laptop, in a paper notebook binder, and having those notes available for later review should be important. And the way we would test that is we would have two groups take notes, but only one of those groups would later study their notes. And the findings there are very, very clear, and that is the group who studies the notes uh, achieves more than, than the group that doesn't study the notes. So in a nutshell, the process of taking notes eh, could be useful, not necessarily, but having notes, having a good set of notes, having a complete set of notes to review is very important. So in that way, the instructor kind of had a point. I'm going to provide you with a good complete set of notes, and that should take care of your needs. So as going back to the teaching part of that then, um, some teachers actually uh, you know, work with students to help them become better uh, note takers. So my daughter, who's in high school, had a social studies teacher that worked with the, the entire class on using the Cornell method of note taking. You know, as somebody that's that's really worked on this this area of, of research for a long time, do you have recommendations on any of those note taking systems? Does that matter? Uh, or uh, it, does it just matter that a person has a strategy for their note taking? If we agree that the real benefit of notes is having a set of notes to review later, and that the more complete those notes are, the better, then I think note-taking becomes a pretty simple riddle to solve. And the solution is, what we need to do is get a complete set of notes. Um, I wouldn't worry so much about the organization. 
I wouldn't worry so much about elaborating beyond those notes. I would say a student's first order of business is get a complete set of notes and then after that we can talk about things that you might want to do to improve those notes and things you want to do to study those notes in preparation for a test. Now, remember I was talking earlier about Teacher A and Teacher A+. Teacher A is so effective that students learn almost in spite of themselves. Well, there's really several things a Teacher A could do to ensure that students take uh, a complete set of notes. And if you want, I can kind of list a, a few of those ideas. Yeah, that would be great. All right, so one of the things that a teacher could do um, is actually do what my statistics instructor did, and that's supply students with a set of notes. You know, what's the difference whether students take them or the instructor provides them? So one obvious thing is that an instructor can provide students with a set of notes. A second thing, if an instructor doesn't want to go to that length or wants students to have more involvement, is the instructor could provide what we call a set of skeletal notes. And this is where you provide some of the information and then spaces for students to add additional information. So this is nice because it trains students to take more of the notes themselves. They get an idea of the kinds of things that should be in notes because the instructor, you know, might have sort of the main idea and then spaces for the details or the examples below that. So both the things I've mentioned so far have proven uh, very successful instructors providing students with complete notes or with skeletal notes that students would complete as the lecture progresses. But there's other things. Um, one thing that um, an instructor can do is simply slow down. Uh, most lectures are delivered, you know, 140, 180 words a minute. And while we might be able to listen at that at that rate, we certainly can't take notes at that rate. I mean, somebody who's an expert typist uh, or keyboarder, you know, might be recording 40, 50 words a minute. Uh, most people when they are, you know, using a pen or pencil are writing, you know, maybe 20, 25 words a minute. So there's a big discrepancy there. So the degree to which a teacher slows down could aid note taking. Similarly, a teacher can pause. You know, why not uh, present information for five or 10 minutes and then pause and say, I'm going to give you a chance to catch up here and simply do that. Let students uh, catch up in their note-taking. I've done studies that have proven that to be very successful. Uh, another thing that teachers can do is they could make their lectures, their lessons available online, uh, you know, uh, an auditory lesson so that students can re-listen to those things. You know, maybe not listen to the whole thing, but parts of it, you know, where maybe they, uh, their note-taking faltered. So that's another way that uh, teachers can help students. Of course, there's uh, what you and I know uh, a lot about, and that's providing cues to students. And there's really two types of cues. There's importance cues. Hey, this is really important. Write this down. Uh, this is absolutely critical. Oh, you don't want to miss this. This is a key point. Or if teachers write something on the board, students get the idea, and all of a sudden, instead of recording 30%, they're recording 80 or 90% of what's on the board. And then the, the other kind of cues is what you and I studied, and those are organizational cues where you kind of give students the coordinates of where you are in the lecture. 
So if you're studying four different theories of development, you might say, well, now let's talk about the limitations of operant conditioning theory. And now students know exactly where we are. Operant conditioning theory, limitations. So they tend to write down those coordinates, and now they're ready to write details about the limitations of that theory. So we can provide organizational cues. And what you and I found in our study is that all of a sudden, instead of 30% of the information, students were writing about writing down about 80% of the details. Yeah. What a huge, huge uh, bonus that was. So anyway, those are some of the ways that teachers, like Teacher A, can pretty much ensure that students are going to come away with a complete set of notes. And of course, you're hoping that, that teachers and students will start to um, package some of the stuff together so that as they're taking notes, they're perhaps doing things uh, like teacher A, A plus is trying to teach them to do and, and you know, making comparison contrasting tables in their notes or, or drawing knowledge diagrams of what it is that they're learning about uh, in the notes so that it actually helps them bring things together. Yeah, yeah. So there's really two things to, to kind of say about that. Um, so even if we just go back to notes being complete and teacher A is doing these things, teacher A can become teacher A plus and say, you know, I'm providing you with this set of skeletal notes, and here's why I'm doing that. Because research shows that the more notes you have to study, the higher your achievement's going to be. And what I'm doing is I'm prompting your note-taking. And this is the kind of thing that you can do for yourself. Here, let me show you what a good complete set of notes looks like from Thursday's lecture. Let's compare these to yours. Huh, look at the differences. This is the kind of thing you need to do and why you need to do it. So. Teacher A can become teacher A plus and help students take more complete notes. What you're getting at as well is what to do with those notes uh, once they've been recorded. And this is absolutely central. And this gets into another big research area of mine uh, of more recent vintage. And that's a learning studying system that I developed called SOAR, S-O-A-R. And SOAR is an acronym. Um, for the steps that both teachers and students need to take in order for uh, learning to take hold and, and to be successful. So S stands for select, and what, what needs to happen is ultimately students need to select all the important information. And select, in my mind, has, has everything to do with all the note-taking stuff that we just talked about. If somebody comes away having selected all the important ideas from a lesson, be it um, you know, an, uh, um, a spoken lesson or a text lesson, doesn't matter, but they need to come away with all the key information. But that's really just the start. See, a lot of students think, that's all I need, good set of notes, and now I'm just going to do what? I'm going to read those notes over and over and over again, and that's called studying, and that's ridiculous. So what do they need to do instead? They need to take that set of notes and go to the second step of SOAR, which is organize. So yeah, they need to create graphic organizers that show the patterns and relationships. So this is where they would create charts and matrices and hierarchies and illustrations and flowcharts and sequences that show the organization within the information. A stands for associate. And what you want to do is not just create these organizers because they look good. 
you know, if I create an organizer comparing several different televisions, now I want to study that organizer and I want to look for associations. Oh, look at the association between this kind of TV and price or this kind of TV and reliability. So you want to make those vital, critical associations. And then R in SOAR stands for regulate. Good learners are self-regulated. They check their own learning. They check their own understanding. They never let the teacher be the first one to test them. They test themselves so thoroughly beforehand, there's nothing the teacher can ask them that they haven't already asked themselves. So, you know, once we've selected, organized, and associated the information, we regulate our own learning, often through practice testing. If a teacher can generate a test, why can't I? So I'm going to try to generate tests in advance, practice answering those questions. And this is the same thing we would do in any area. If we were going to have to do a horn solo, uh, you know, we would practice that horn solo all the way through in a, in a room similar to where we're going to perform. If we're going to run a five-kilometer race and there's a lot of hills, we would want to practice on hills in advance. We don't want to be surprised uh, during any kind of testing or assessment situation. We want to have been there before. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, what uh, I would want teachers and students to be doing with that selected information is, is following through with organization, association, and regulation. And it seems that, it, obviously, the SOAR uh, approach and, and philosophy is something relevant to a face-to-face -face classroom, but it's equally applicable to online learning uh, in terms of the students needing to go through that process, correct? Absolutely. It's, it's applicable to any content, uh, any format. You know, where do you not need to select information, organize, associate, and regulate? It's, it's a very simplistic system that's going to work uh, under any conditions. Yeah. In terms of uh, contemporary students, one of the things that I've been interested in in the last, I would say in the last year, is I've started to see more people trying to do research, looking at uh, the use of, of, you know, modern technology, using laptops, using iPads or other tablets in the classroom to take notes on. And I've been fascinated because the the popular media storyline is that the these types of technologies uh, do not improve learning and, in fact, in some cases can degrade learning. And and there's been studies that have, that have you know, demonstrated that. W what's your take on using, you know, any of these technologies rather than the simple pen, pencil, and notepad approach that yeah. you're taking? Yeah, that's a good question and uh, good timing because just yesterday, uh, my students and I submitted uh, a research study to the Journal of Educational Psychology that involved laptop versus longhand note-taking. And this has really been uh, something that's been in the news um, quite frequently uh, lately, and, and and there's only been a handful of studies uh, on this topic, but uh, the New York Times and and other uh, big publications are have have done uh, a, you know a lot of stories about about this topic. So it is uh, very much uh, a hot one. Um, I guess the first thing I would say it kind of goes back to that using things for good <laughs> as opposed to evil. Uh, you know, students in college classrooms that I've observed um, really, really have a hard time 
um, you know, avoiding the pitfalls of technology. I teach a study skills class and we have, oh, six or seven sections of 40 people. So we're talking about hundreds of students. So I get a chance to go in and visit and observe these classes. And I'll often just, just sit in the back of the room and, you know, students don't really notice me. And these are in classes where, these are in study skills classes where students have been warned about the dangers of misusing technology. And still, students will have their laptops up and um, way more than half the students are flitting around the internet, you know, uh, shopping for shoes or <laughs> airline tickets or checking Facebook bouncing back and forth between, you know, maybe the course PowerPoint and, and these different sites. Um, maybe students who are told not to have their phones out during class are slipping them out of their pocket. They're checking uh, email, text messages, and so forth. It is a problem. So even in a class where we tell students it's a problem and we outlaw it, it's still going on. At, at a high level. And, and this is a, a huge, huge problem because students can't be thinking about, you know, more than one thing at a time. Uh, you know, this idea of multitasking is just wrong. Uh, people can't do multiple things at the same time and do them all well. Uh, what they can do maybe is, is go back and forth very quickly among tasks. You know, I kind of call it the CNN effect. You know, is it really possible to listen to this commentator, follow these headlines on the top, the scroll on the bottom, and follow all those things simultaneously? No, not really. So, so number one, I think Scott is is that's that's the problem. Um, on the other hand, I often advocate to students. Uh, look, I'm I'm going to use PowerPoint in here. There's various slides. There's just a little bit of information on here. You know, you couldn't just take these slides and study them. You need to take notes on these slides. So I think it's a good idea to have these slides up in front of you in class and take your notes directly on the slide or right below the slide, which, um, you know, PowerPoint function allows you to do. So, so on one hand, I advocate that. But uh, because I, I think it's very important to not try to repeat something in notes that you already have. If I provide them with a graph, why should they copy that graph if they already have it? That makes no sense. But if I tell them information about that graph, I want them to note that, but I want them to note it next to the graph where the information belongs, not somewhere else. Okay. So having said that, let me tell you about um, an actual study that we, that we just completed. Um, students... Uh, either took notes, um, and this was with a PowerPoint presentation, maybe about 30 minutes long. The presentation was about educational measurement, which happened to be a course topic. And students were directed to either take notes um, on paper, you know, with a pen. You know, we call that longhand note-taking, or take laptop notes using a laptop that we provided with all the functions open. <clears throat> and um, with half the people... Um, after they took notes, they were tested right away because we were interested in seeing how laptop and longhand notes compare for the process function of notes when notes are only taken but not reviewed. And then we had other people in the experiment actually review their notes and then take a test so we could compare them with regard to how effective their notes are after they're reviewed. So we basically had four groups. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So here were the findings. Um, first off, we would have to say that the notes taken 
by the longhand note takers were superior to the notes taken by the laptop note takers. Let me tell you why. They both recorded about the same percentage of critical lecture ideas. And that's our old friend, you know, about 35%. But what the laptop note takers did was their notes were a lot more wordy. They used a lot more words to convey an idea. And not only were they more wordy, but they were more verbatim. They took on the task of note-taking as if they were like professional transcribers and basically were writing uh, verbatim uh, a lot of times what was said in the lecture. So what that would mean is that they're really not thinking about the information. They're really not processing at any kind of deep level. They're basically just transcribing notes. Okay. Meanwhile, the longhand note-takers used fewer words to express an idea. They used more of their own words, more paraphrasing. So, you know, they're, they're thinking about the information a little bit more. Um, and they used more signaling in their notes. Uh, you know, drawing arrows from here to there, bolding things, starring things, etc. They used more signals. The other thing that we looked at in particular is we had a lot of images in this lecture, graphs, for example. And, the, and this is what we expected would happen. The laptop note-takers recorded none of these things, right? Because, hmm. because how could they, you know? I mm -hmm. mean, they, they just didn't really have the technology to do it that quickly. Meanwhile, the longhand note-takers are, you know, sketching out these graphs and images. All right. So, so we think that, number one, better notes on the part of the longhand note-takers. So how did this play out in terms of achievement? Um, in the short run, when there was no review, uh, there was actually a little bit of a benefit for the laptop note-takers. They actually outscored the longhand note-takers uh, a little bit uh, across a variety of tests that we had. When it came to uh, a test that followed a review period, however, this is where the longhand note-takers really shined. They outscored, achieved more than the laptop note-takers. So what our final conclusions were is recording a better set of notes was difficult and without an opportunity to review that better set of notes, you know, they were pouring so much concentration into, into creating this better set of notes that they really, you know, at, at the end of the lecture had not necessarily learned a lot or as much. But when given the opportunity to review this superior set of notes, uh, all the benefits came, came, came forth. And they were then able to uh, outperform the laptop note takers. So, you know, in the end, that's what notes are for, is for having notes to review. So the nod here would have to go to the longhand note takers. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And, and I think that... Um, you know, I played around because of my interest in this. Uh, I've played around with a lot of different types of apps, and one of the things that I've noticed is that the the apps, especially on the iDevices or you know similar types of tablets, have started to try to do more to replicate 
the more manual, traditional process of note-taking rather than having all the bells and whistles that you would have like in a Microsoft Word uh, app or something like that where you can do all kinds of stuff. They, they've tried to get simpler and make use of um, using uh, uh, like a stylus or something so that it feels more like you're taking an old-fashioned set of notes. Oh, having okay. said that, having said that, I still find that it's much quicker for me to actually use pen and paper rather than trying to use uh, a, a tablet to take the notes on. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think that like you gave a metaphor before, you can use the computer or uh, other device and not use it well and waste a lot of time doing it. And I right. think for me in taking notes, I waste a lot of time playing with the app, trying to get it to work right or, you know, whatever, rather than actually taking good notes. Right. And a lecture is fleeting. You just wouldn't have That's the right. time to do that and you would be missing a lot of valuable information. I mean, I'm a, a you know, a two finger typist, so I, I would really be at a disadvantage trying to take uh, notes with a laptop during a lecture. And I've kind of trained myself to be able to, um, you know, just write very, very fast, use abbreviations and yeah. symbols yeah. and so forth to try to capture the information. Um, and then, and then another good strategy is to look at those notes afterwards and allow those notes to serve as retrieval cues for remembering some stuff you didn't write down. So I go back and I see, uh, I, oh, I made this note. Oh, yeah, yeah. Didn't the instructor give an example having to do with telephones here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here, let me write that down now. So, um, yeah, that's that's another uh, good strategy that students and teachers can use is going back and and revising notes. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, you know, all the bells and whistles and so forth can be things that slow you down. You know, when it comes to production, if we were trying to create an optimal set of notes, yeah, then we'd want those devices at hand. But um, in, in a pinch, uh, you know, in a short time frame, they 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 they're likely to interfere. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have had some luck with uh, taking handwritten notes and then finding a way to get them into a digital environment like Evernote or Dropbox or something like that, simply by taking a picture of them. And so sometimes that's a strategy that I think is effective for people so that they have a safe way of keeping those notes um, and, and maybe combines the best of both worlds. One other thing uh, that that uh, I've done as a result of you know learning from you and, and, and thinking about some of these things, when I get to the end of a class period, uh, and, unless I've talked too long, <laughs> which happens on occasion, as we all know, uh, but if, if we get to the end of a class period and I have, you know, five or even 10 minutes left, a lot of times what I'll do is have students talk with each other about the notes that they've taken and maybe even go so far as to quiz one another at the end of the class period uh, for that reason that you just suggested so that they can say, oh, okay, my notes in this one area weren't nearly as complete as I thought they were because you know, uh, Adam sitting next to me got those in his notes and I don't have them in mine. So I can't answer that question. So let me get that stuff from Adam so that I have a more complete set of notes. I think that's a, a really great uh, strategy for teachers to use, again, to help their students take a better set of notes. Yeah. You know, that's a study that um, just was published in the last year that I did. Um, it's and, and oddly enough, it was one of the first to ever look at revision uh, in, in the first experiment, we had students either recopy their notes, which students tend to do, kind of a mindless activity, or go in and try to revise their notes, make them better, make them mm -hmm. more complete. And, and the results were pretty straightforward there. The revisers did end up with more notes and with higher achievement. And in the second study, we kind of did what, what you were hinting at. 
Um, we had everybody revise, but we had some people revise one time at the end of a lecture versus we had another group revise three times throughout the lecture. So in the end, they both revised for the same amount of time, but one group got to do it periodically. The other variable in the study was whether people revised by themselves or revised with a partner. And, and this is kind of what you were getting at there. When they revise with a partner, they're able to look at one another's notes and say, hey, I didn't get that. Let me write that down. But they were also able to sort of reconstruct together. Uh, hey, yeah, yeah. You know, wasn't there an example for that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there was another detail. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Good. Let's get that detail down. And so in the end, as we expected, the best was the best of both worlds, that it was good to revise and it was good to revise throughout the lecture and with a partner. And when people did that, they ended up with a much more complete set of notes and they ended up with higher achievement. Very good. Last question for you, Ken. Um, you've, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about teachers. What advice would you have, uh, you know, related to some of these issues for parents that maybe are not trained in, in pedagogy like you and, you and I and other uh, teachers are? What should parents be doing with their kids to help them become better learners uh, and, and sort of give them a leg up. So is there is there a parent A plus, like there's a teacher A plus? Wow, yeah. That's a good question to end on. Uh, I'm taking a sabbatical next spring, and I hope to put together uh, sort of the answer to, 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 that, to that question. It's going to be a book for parents on how to develop talent. Talent could be, you know, chess or music, but it could also just be academic talent. Um, yeah, the, the focus of, of my talent studies has really been on the parent. In a few studies, we've talked to the talented individual directly. You know, we've talked to, you know, people like Bonnie Blair, who's, uh, you know, a many time world champion, Olympic, uh, speed skater. Uh, but in most of the studies, we're talking to parents to try to find out what their role has been in the development of talent. And in a nutshell, I mean, we're finding out that there's no way the kids could have done it on their own. You know, behind every talented child is a parent, you know, just sort of pushing and pulling the right switches. Uh, one of the things we, we find is that, you know, these are not the tiger parents who are doing it to, you know, uh, achieve their own fame, <laughs> but they're parents who have kids who've really caught a bug who are really interested and motivated about something, and the parent is just sort of feeding that habit. Um, and it's also, you know, if we can equate it with special education, you know, some kids have some very definite special needs that cannot be ignored, but kids that are highly talented do too. They need some special um, resources and attention as well. So, you know, so what are we finding is we're finding that parents are fully committed right along with the child. They commit as much as the child does. They're not driving the bus, uh, the kid is, but they're, you know, supplying all the fuel, all the gas and making sure the bus is clean and, and ready to go. So they're doing some extraordinary things. You know, uh, we've seen um, parents of baton twirlers who are building great rooms on their house. So it has a, 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 an indoor place to practice. Uh, we've seen parents who are flying halfway across the country 
on a weekly basis so their child can have music lessons with just the right instructor. We've seen baton twirlers who travel across the country for lessons or invite coaches to their houses, to their homes for weeks um, and, and so that they can get the kind of instruction uh, they need. So, um, and, and you know, and these are not just all wealthy people too that can afford this sort of thing. In many cases, uh, there's incredible sacrifices going on in the home so that the child can get the instruction they need, can get to the places they need to go. You know, we even see families who get uprooted and move to another part of the country because that's just sort of the center of excellence for downhill skiing or figure skating or whatever it might be. So, yeah, parents are prime movers in the development of talent, and they clearly do some important things uh, from managing the careers to, you know, getting coaches to working on, on practicing with the child. They, they basically are, are doing it all. Um, I, I guess for, you know, the other thing I'd want to say is, you know, the goal here is not to make everybody extremely talented. That, you know, that doesn't need to be the goal. I mean, these are special situations where the kid has incredible motivation and, and wants to do it and has the support of the parents. But if we understand what it takes to get to that level, then we can take those lessons and we can apply them across the board to anybody because it's a continuum. Even though you may not become, you know, a national champion chess player, you can become better in chess. And even though you may not become a national merit finalist, you could become a darn good student. You could become a better student. And you could go to a, a, a very, you know, have a very successful college experience. So I think the thing we need to realize is that it is this continuum. And what works for the highly talented really works to some degree for all. And I think we need to let parents know what these things are that they can do. Um, and it kind of starts with time because, you know, we see a lot of kids, you know, as they say, being raised by appliances or technology and wasting a lot of time. You know, when you look at it, schools are really only supplying about four or five hours of instruction a day. So what if just one hour a day a parent is working with a child on school stuff, on math, on engineering, on music, whatever it is the child's interested in, it's amazing how much more instruction the child is, is now getting. So I think parents have to realize that they can and do play a vital role in a child's education, in a child's talent development, and I, I think we just got to get that word out there that behind every successful child and behind a lot of learning uh, are, are parents who are, who are doing this sort of work. It's a great message to end on. Ken, thank you so much for being a guest on this uh, program. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I enjoyed it. And thank you to the listeners for being a part of Teaching Matters produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at WOUB backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening and have a good day.